Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film listeners. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. Today, we're going to be starting something a little different. I'm currently scheduling a bunch of standalone episodes to bridge the gap between the -the off-the-shelf series and the next series that we're going to be doing, but it's taking a bit longer than I had expected. There's a lot of changes going on in my life right now that I won't get into, but it's making scheduling things a little bit difficult. But I wanted to record anyway, and I've always wanted to record episodes that were just me, so I figured, why not do some diary entries. So what I thought I would do is start doing some content that was a bit more current. And what I'm going to be doing on these diary entries, it's just going to be me. And I will be taking you through my letterboxed of all the things that I have watched recently, giving quick reviews of them, my ratings, you know, my overall thoughts, and just taking you through what I watch on uh on a regular basis. And since this is the first one, I figured, you know, go big or go home. We're going to be covering the entire month of June uh, of what I watched, whether it was in theaters or at home, on streaming service, on physical media, whatever it is. So this is going to be diary entry number one. I'm very excited to start this new thing, and I want to try and get these out a bit more um, regularly. I'm not going to set like a schedule for them because they're kind of, you know, impromptu in that way. So this one is just going to be covering the month of June. I'll do another one probably in a couple weeks here about the first half of July and then probably, you know, another one to finish out July. But I'm very excited. I hope you guys enjoy this. Um, So let's get right to it. Again, only for the month of June here. So starting on June 3rd, and you'll notice that some of these are going to be future film episodes coming up, and some of them are much more recent releases. I have a director binge in here. I have some rewatches. I have some first watches. It's very exciting. And the first one was my very first full, all the way through, viewing of Trainspotting. Very excited because this is going uh, to be a film episode coming up very soon that I recorded with my buddy Tyler Harner, um, who is a friend of mine from Ithaca College, that um, recorded the episode in the ice storm with me during Hollow Thanksmas. Train spotting, uh, I don't want to get too much into it because, um, you know, I recorded an hour and a half long podcast about it. But it's interesting how this was actually, I had seen half of the movie back in high school, and for some reason I just never finished it. And so I decided, um, you know, when Tyler said it's one of his favorites, I was excited to actually watch it all the way through. And man, what a fucking wild ride uh, it is. I gave it four and a half stars. I gave it a like on Letterboxd. It is, you know, the most energetic and enjoyable movie about heroin addiction. You know, we compare it a lot to... um, Requiem for a Dream throughout the podcast. That'll be coming out, you know, very soon. Um, And how that movie is extremely depressing and you never want to watch it again, but you can see yourself coming back to train spotting because of the characters and because of how uh, just balls to the wall energy it is. And it takes you through such an interesting um, ride. And I was, you know, I was really happy to kind of now finally, you know, check it off the list that I fully watched it. Um, So, yeah, that was the first time I watched that on June 3rd of this year. Two days later, on June 5th, I went back to the movie theater to see Top Gun Maverick. Um, And uh, I say back to the movie theater. I mean, I just went to the movie theater. This was my first time watching it. And uh, I have been very excited for Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun 1 is a uh, a very important film in my family. Uh, It's one of my brother's favorites. It's a classic 80s movie, so my mom loves it. I think it came out the year after she graduated high school. Um, So it came out in 1986. Um, I've always loved it, and uh, I was very excited, you know, for the sequel as soon as the first trailer dropped way back in the, you know, late months of 2019, or it may have actually been the summer of 2019, I can't remember, Um, but obviously this was a big, big, um, like one of the first movies to be pushed back because of COVID, it was originally going to come out in May 2020, and then they pushed it to November, and then they pushed it to um, the following year, and they just kept pushing it back and back and back. And finally, in the spring, Memorial Day weekend, 2022, Top Gun Maverick hit theaters. 
Um, and I obviously was extremely excited about it. I've been wanting to see it forever. And, uh, you know, just all of the press surrounding Tom Cruise and how he was filming Mission Impossible in Europe when COVID, you know, hit and he's been he was trying to continue to film that. And obviously the the meltdown that in, that ensued and took the Internet by storm. Um, and we you know saw him going to see a screening of Tenet in theaters during COVID. He's just been trying to get movie theaters back up and running and get movies made Um and I got to say, I think he won. Top Gun Maverick is an incredible experience. Um, it was it's my favorite movie of this year so far. It was an incredible um, like just ride. Like it was like obviously the aerial stuff is so well filmed and just amazing energy. It like really encapsulates you. You are glued to the screen the entire time. I saw it on the biggest possible screen that they have at the Regal here in Binghamton, which is not an IMAX screen, unfortunately. Um but and it, like but it also makes it like it's its own movie like yes there's callbacks to the original um to the original film and it has um like literal flashbacks uh but it makes it's its own movie it has its own story it is constantly moving and trying to you know relay the the story that is happening right in front of you to the audience it's not just a rehash of the original it's not just constant reminders of the original i mean obviously like if you've seen it you know the movie opens with a direct homage to the original but then they form their own movie around it and it's really impressive to see i think it's tom cruise's best performance in a really long time i think he has kind of um fallen off the the edge a little bit in terms of performance i think especially since maybe like jack reacher or even, like, Ghost Protocol. I think Ghost Protocol was kind of his last, like, really energetic, like, Tom cruise performance in that stunt man part of his career that he has just occupied for the past, you know, like, decade or so. But ever since then, I think he's kind of fallen into the Jack Reacher side of things where he is a bit more stone cold, and he uh, doesn't emote as much. Like, Ethan Hunt in the first Mission Impossible is definitely not the same Ethan Hunt as in fallout and just from a performance standpoint and he definitely is a bit more stone-faced in this like kind of older weathered tom cruise in this but he is loving being in this movie and since he's at the center of it you know he has to sell it and he really does he has some great moments of emotion there's a fantastic moment with him and val kilmer that's really fun um and really you know tugs at your heartstrings and it's just such a satisfying movie. You know, I don't want a Top Gun 3. I'm, I think this was just a, a wonderful return to form, you know, return to movie theaters, even though obviously we've been going back to movie theaters, you know, for almost a year now. But this is what movies can be. This is what I look for when I go to the movies. I look for this type of experience. And, you know, obviously it's a sequel and, you know, big IP franchises are the thing that is dominating our culture right now. But, you know, I think that this is one that still proves to be that you can make a singular movie and update, um, you know, technology, just filmmaking tactics, excuse me, um, to, you know, really bring back audiences. And, and, it, and it's been making so much fucking money. I'm like so happy with the success of this movie. It's I, I'll just gush about it forever. It's so, so great. I, I can't wait to watch it again. It's. It's phenomenal. If you haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, please run to the theater to see it. It's it's really, really special. So I gave that five stars on Letterboxd. And of course, I got a like. Um, and, you know, it's just it's just great to have movies back. It's just really great. Also, if you hear the clicking throughout this, it's because, you know, I'm I've letterboxed here on my um, computer and I'm you know clicking on the mouse to, you know, scroll through. So that's Top Gun Maverick. Next up, two days later on June 7th. Um, I watched a film called Last Night at the Alamo, which is from 1983 that is directed by Eagle Pinnell. I heard about this movie because I heard Ethan Hawke and Richard Linklater talking about Eagle Pinnell because he is this kind of Maverickian um, director from Austin, Texas that was pretty you know, well-known in that scene in the late 70s and the early 80s. He made three films, I believe. Um, one of them is called The Whole Shooting Match, Last Night at the Alamo, and I can't remember what the other one's called. But he also made a short film that I watched recently called uh, Hell of a Note. 
And Last Night at the Alamo is his last film. And he died very, very young, was uh, kind of the inspiration for Sundance. You know, Robert Redford took a lot of um, inspiration from him. But uh, specifically, I think he cites the whole shooting match, which I have not seen yet at the time of this recording. Um, but I believe all of his work is on the Criterion channel, which is where I watched this. Um, and this was a part of um, Ethan Hawke's Adventures in Movie Going series that he did with um, Criterion. Essentially, this movie is about, um, you know, it, it, it is an embodiment of the hangout genre. Um, and it's about like a, a just a group of people like either down on their luck or, you know, just um, looking for a good time hanging out at this bar called the Alamo in Austin, Texas, that is going to close down um, the next night. And they try and do what they can to keep it alive and uh, to keep it in business. It's really short. It's an hour and 20 minutes. Um, it's really wonderful. It's a wonderful movie. I really loved it. I was not expecting to love it as much as I did. I gave it four stars and gave it a like. Um, if you're not a fan of the hangout genre, you may not like this because, I mean, you know, I, I hate to use the term because it is so kind of weathered and tired at this point that like nothing really happens. Um, which yes, if you're looking at a traditional film structure or narrative, sure, nothing really happens, but each scene is filled with just characters hanging out and talking and, um, you know, going and dealing with like their relationships, either with one another or with characters that we don't meet. Um, it's so contained and it is so independent and clearly so uh, handled with care and uh, but also made with, uh, you know, such little money. There's a couple shots uh, where the boom mic does drift in uh, to frame, which I think, you know, has to do with the fact that it is a full screen aspect ratio, um, which happens a lot when you see movies like that. We talked about that on uh, our episode on the uh, Play It As It Lays movie that Rihanna and I did. Um but yeah, no, this this movie has so much heart to it. Like the characters feel like characters. Um, you really feel their relationships with one another. Every actor like really is putting in a lot of work for their character. Um, I, I, I want to give a you know specific shout. The three people that I like really drifted towards um, because they get a lot of screen time. Uh, Sonny Carl Davis, who plays Cowboy Regan. They refer to him as... Um, as cowboy or cowboy Reagan, I think is how they, they just refer to him as cowboy. Um, he's so good and he's clearly so damaged and has this image of himself that he has this ego and persona that he has to keep up and he is known for something that happened in his past. Um, but he isn't maintaining that success. And I think that that's such a small town local character that I really love and I find very interesting. Um, then there's um, Lou Perryman, who plays Claude. He gets a lot of time with... Um, excuse me. They, um, he spends a lot of time with Cowboy, and you can really see their friendship, and they're just such eccentric characters. Like, Claude, for the most part, is just like he's saying... <laughs> he's saying shit a lot, or he's saying, like, God damn it! Like, he ends every sentence with either one of those sayings or both of them which is just hysterical. Um, and then there's uh, Stephen Matila, Matilla, um, who plays Ichabod, who doesn't want to be called Ichabod. Um, but, you know, he is this, like, he's kind of the character that opens the movie of driving to the Alamo, and he's just swearing up a storm and, uh, you know, trying to get his girlfriend to be into, like, whatever he's doing. And... It's, it's really fun to see these characters, you know, maybe fun is not the right word, but it was like so interesting to see these characters grapple with change and, um, you know, the fear of the changing times and they want to hold on to what's theirs. And I think that that's a pretty universal theme that a lot of people can get into. Um, but it's just used like to the utmost simplicity here. And it's in a be it's in beautiful black and white. You know, the camera has some really amazing shots. Most of them, you know, just are since just like watching these people. Um, and you know, all these characters are overlapping and talking. Um, and so sometimes the sound drowns. Like it's such an indie movie, and I, you can see the inklings of uh, Linklater 
in this. Um, you know, there's stuff for Dazed and Confused and, and Slacker and uh, it's just it's really inspiring. And the fact that he made it for thirty thousand dollars and died just a few years after like it's it's sad and you you know I, I wish he got to make more movies um but yeah so if you have criterion channel um definitely check out last night at the alamo directed by eagle Pinnell from 1983 so i gave that four stars and i gave it a like i'm definitely going to be re-watching it um very soon okay moving on uh the next one on our list is the uh only other one that uh, i believe on this list so far is going to be a future film episode um which has not been recorded yet just because of some scheduling conflicts. I promise new episodes will be coming out very soon. Don't worry. We have some really good ones cooking up for you. A lot of them just have to be recorded in August because of the nature of the guest schedule. But uh, they're really good. And this one, I think, is going to be really great. I'm very excited. We're going to be talking about, um, with my friend Alex Coburn and I, are going to be talking about House, the 1977 Japanese film uh, that has kind of become infamous in a way because of you know its resurgence on Criterion, and word of mouth, you know, I, I don't really know how to accurately describe this movie, and I'm actually kind of glad that I haven't recorded the episode on it yet, because so much happens in it, and it's so trippy, and just such an experience that I, um, am, I'm, I'm glad that I've let it, I've let it sit, and I'm going to rewatch it before, before we record that episode, and I'm very excited about that, um, I gave this movie four stars, um, I did not give it the like button, because again, I don't really know what to make of this movie, it's just so bonkers, like, it's such an, it's an engaging movie, which is why I gave it such a high review, even though I don't really know what to make of it, which I think is kind of a testament to a perfect first viewing. You don't really know what to make of a movie. You just kind of let it wash over you and you enjoy it. You know, that happened to me when I first saw, you know, Eternal Sunshine. I just kind of let the movie wash over me. And I was like, I don't know what that was, but it was it's one of my new favorite. And it's still one of my favorites. Um, But this movie, uh, essentially, House is about a group of school friends who travel to um, one of their relatives, um, house and a bunch of wild shit happens. (laughs) Like, I don't really know how else to describe it because it's so insane. And, uh, the, the imagery and the effects and the, whether practical or visual, like it all looks so good. Um, it's made by, um, it's a Japanese film and I, I do, I do, I do not want to try to attempt the director's name. I know I'm going to butcher it. Um, but it's a popular one on Criterion. Um, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Criterion. So, um, a lot more movies on this list are going to be from there, but we'll get to that when we get to it. So yeah, I'm very excited to rewatch this movie. I think after the second viewing, I'll have a bit more of a, um, at least somewhat of an idea of what to say. And again, I'm really glad that we've waited because like, I think just recording it after the first viewing would be too much. I wouldn't have fully processed it. And, but it's creating something that you've never seen before. I don't know any other movie that's like this. Um, but, uh, so if you've never seen the house, I would definitely recommend it. As I said, I give it four stars, um, on letterboxd. It is just, as my review would say, it is whack. I should also say, if you'd like to follow me on Letterboxd, you can uh, check me out. Um, my handle is BigWalls21. That's B-I-G-W-A-H-L-S-21. Um, I update it very frequently. Anything, any movie that I watch will get a, uh, a rating and a review and a log. So go check me out there. So we're moving away from Criterion for a second because uh, the next thing I watched on June 9th I rewatched The Cat in the Hat um, which is a previous episode that we did one in this series The Best of the Worst rest in peace to that series we're not doing that series anymore I, I do not want to for various reasons um, uh, this movie is god awful it's so bad and the more you watch it the less enjoyment you get out of it it's not like Spy Kids 3D where Matt and I have a blast every time we watch that or The Happening or like it's just so terrible and it looks bad the acting's like everything about it is terrible why did i watch this you may ask (laughs) um good question because um i saw that i've never actually done a commentary watch through like i'm a big fan of mystery science theater but that it feels different to me because mystery science theater they're introducing you to a movie and they make themselves a part of the movie in a way like you can follow along what's happening in the movie, like the plot and enjoy their comments as it's going on. You know, they wait for dead space to make jokes or, you know, they're so good at timing so that you don't miss anything. Whereas I feel like a lot of commentary tracks now are just like, 
you're mainly just there to hang out with whoever's talking um, in the commentary and they're just talking like so much over it that you can't follow it along. Like you can't put on a commentary and have it if you want to pay attention to the movie. So um, I, I watched this with the um, your movie sucks dot com uh, commentary. So with um, I, I believe it's uh, Adam Scoot and Gael, I, I think. Um, and uh, they're all I enjoy all their content. They're very funny. I think they put it best by saying this movie is aggressively ugly. And that is entirely true. I don't think that I think this movie gets compared a lot with how the Grinch stole Christmas. And I mean, rightfully so, because, you know, around the same time, you know, the last kind of two prominent live action Dr. Seuss movies. Um, and, you know, say what you want about the Grinch. At least the Grinch has a story to it. You know, there's Christmas merriment. There's a three act structure. There's something. The cat in the hat is not a story. You know, this cat just kind of shows up and fucks around with these kids and then he leaves, you know. So I watched it with that just to kind of wind down and, uh, I had a lot going on that week, uh, so I needed something to kind of de-stress, and uh, that was kind of the perfect thing to put on, because their commentary was very funny, um, and so I, I enjoyed doing that, but oh my god, that movie is just awful. It's so bad. So I gave that no stars. It does not deserve any amount of praise, or it's so awful. Oh my god. So, one thing I've been trying to do recently, I've been trying to expand my film library by doing um, director binges. I pick a director and I try and go through as much of their filmography as possible. Usually it's like um, any director that I like kind of stumble upon, or not that, not necessarily that I like haven't heard of, or like I'm discovering them, or anything like that, but like if I watch one movie and then I'm like, oh, I'll check out this person's other stuff. I did that before, who I'm about to talk about, with Brian De Palma. If you follow me, you'll notice I logged, I think like 11 of De Palma's movies throughout like the past few months none this month I had finished it in May um but I started with blowout and then I was like okay I gotta watch his other stuff so I watched all like um much of his other prominent films um throughout his filmography and he's become one of my favorite directors and so I uh, I'm interested to do that and so I wanted to kind of go back and um you know do that again with the different director and I was watching the Safty Brothers Criterion Closet Picks video and they mentioned two films by Robert Bresson. They mentioned A Man Escaped and they mentioned L'Argent. And so I was like, I've heard A Man Escaped is really good. I'll watch that. And that's on Criterion. I think it's also on HBO. I could be wrong, but um, uh, I watched it and it's tremendous. It is a phenomenal movie. So on June 12th, I watched that. Um, I gave it five stars. I gave it a big old like. Robert Bresson often gets called like the patron saint of cinema in a way. You know, he's making a lot of movies throughout the 50s and the 60s and, uh, you know, has a very distinct style to him and topics that interests him. Uh, I think escaping judgment or trying to evade capture and uh, trial is a big theme through a lot of his movies, as, um, as, as we'll talk about. But A Man Escaped is just an amazing movie. Um, it is a perfectly told story. Like from the get go, it's like really well paced. The, the, um, the action is constantly moving. You understand what the main character is going through. You understand everyone's side in the situation. When new characters get brought into the story, you feel that they're actually characters and, uh, they're a part of the story and have some weight to what's going on. And it's incredibly riveting. The entire final 20 minutes that is the actual prison escape. I don't think that's a spoiler because the movie's called A Man Escaped. And the Safdies say it's like the best movie that gives its ending away in the title. So don't, don't yell at me. That's Prasant's problem. But um, it's the entire like he's the way he plots the escape and how he find out like where everything is in the prison and his position and how he tries to get out. And then when he finally like attempts it. It's just so incredible to watch. Um, so that, yeah, I think I think it's a perfect movie. I gave it five stars. It's by far my favorite of the Brisson movies that I've watched. Um, you know, so far I watched two, four, I believe six of his movies throughout this month um, that I'll be talking about. Next, I actually did on uh, June 14th, I did a double feature of two of Brisson's films, um, two of the shorter ones. Uh, that I was excited to watch. One of them is from 1962. It's called The Trial of Joan of Arc. Not to be confused with the film from the 1920s, The Passion of Joan of Arc. It's a very, it's a very different film. 
Um, the Trial of Joan of Arc uh, is about an hour long. It details, um, as it you know describes the um, the actual kind of courtroom drama aspects of the trial of Joan of Arc, and then ends with um, her um, with the verdict and her being burned um, at the stake. Again, I don't think that's a spoiler because that's the story of Joan of Arc. Everyone knows it. I didn't really find anything super interesting in this film. I gave it two and a half stars. I I watched it mainly because it was short and I wanted to, um, you know, again, delve deeper into Brisson. And I think this one is just really slow, even though it's an hour, you know, you, you kind of expect it to get to the nitty and the gritty. I think it's just kind of going through the motions. Um, I struggle, even though I mentioned it as such, I don't, I kind of struggle to call it like a courtroom drama. Like it's kind of just going through the, uh, the cliff notes version of the trial of Joan of Arc. There's not a lot of emotion in it. There's some interesting ideas, particularly with the ending and how they film, you know, the verdict. And, uh, but overall I found it kind of dull. There wasn't really anything for me to latch onto. There wasn't a performance that stood out. There wasn't a huge takeaway other than just, you know, the story of Joan of Arc itself. It was kind of a in one ear, out the other ear, I, which was kind of unfortunate. So I I didn't really enjoy that one that much. But the other one that I watched that I did very much enjoy um, was Pickpocket, which is um, from 1959, one of his more celebrated films that's about um, essentially uh, a guy who is really fucking good at pickpocketing. This movie, I think, is, is it's really short. It's, um, yeah, it's really short. It's 75 minutes. Um, and this one, I think, is a much better paced story than, than Trial of Joan of Arc. Um, this one has a lot of really interesting character moments, relationships um, between everybody. Um, I love a good movie, you know, where a protagonist is obsessed with something. You can very much tell that this is, um, not only is he good at what he's doing, but he is very much obsessed with it. There's a scene early on in the film where he's talking about thieves and um, the nature of if theft is good and, um, you know, the nature of if it's like, okay, or, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, and you start to really side with this guy and, he, and he's not doing anything that doesn't, um, that is extremely harmful, but you obviously, you know, he's, he's stealing, which, you know, you automatically kind of accept as, you know, being not so great. Uh, um, you know, hot take it, uh, it's a really interesting movie and, uh, it has some really good tension in it. It, it does really well with, uh, with close-ups and showing you an action and building the tension that way. Um, and it has a really good relationship subplot between him and his brother and then this girl that they meet. Uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Pickpocket. I gave it um, three and a half stars. And, I, and I'll get into it. I think Brisson does really well with emotion and playing with you know how you're looking at the world that he is presenting to you. I don't think it's very easy to say that he thinks the world is ugly or that he thinks it's a terrible place or that he doesn't find um, interest or intrigue in what he's presenting because he definitely does. But yeah, this one, the tone is very, it's very interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed Pickpocket. And then later that night, I decided to settle in for a rewatch. So on June 14th, I watched three movies and two of them were much shorter, but um, and I watched during the day. Um, but this one, I, I settled in for an evening rewatch of A Clockwork Orange from 1971, directed by Stanley Kubrick. You know, a, a movie, you know, that has um, been a part of pop culture, pop, pop culture iconography for, you know, at this point, over 50 years, which is wild to think, um, you know, for better or for worse. Um, I saw this movie when I was first, I was in high school, and I was, I was a junior in high school, and I didn't really love it all that much. One of my hotter takes in movies is that I always found the second half way more interesting than the first half, which I think a lot more people latch on to the first half because it's about all the debauchery and, you know, setting up the world. Whereas I think in the second half, like after he goes to prison and after, um, you know, he goes through all the reform and gets realizes the realities of the world that he is, he thought that he ruled. I feel like that's where the real character study comes in. But this movie played so much better for me on this rewatch. This movie is unbelievable it's so good i give it four and a half stars i gave it a like as i said i rewatched it like i said i think that i still enjoy the second half better than the first half but it's it, it is a complete story it is a complete character study 
Um, everything that is set up in the first act or the first half comes through to fruition in the second half. Um, and the world that you are kind of surrounded by is, you know, is very gross and very disturbing and, um, you know, is a place that you don't want to be in, but Kubrick makes it flashy and the choices that he makes are like that of a symphony, you know, the way that he makes the brutality so brutal and it's effective and, um, and paces everything so well. And all of the characters are clearly pushed to their limits through, his insane style and the way that he kind of utilizes slow motion and um, fast motion is really impressive that you don't really see a lot nowadays. And, you know, we can, you know, gawk over Kubrick all we want. I don't think we've actually done a Stanley Kubrick movie on the show, which is unfortunate, but I'm sure we will at some point. But I found it interesting that I don't really know what the message is that Kubrick is kind of getting at. Like, I don't really know fully what the actual, like, solid takeaway is. I mean, he's obviously no stranger to ambiguous themes and messages. You know, I, I don't think the I don't think there's one single way to view his movies. You know, even though he himself was such an enigmatic filmmaker in a way that he wouldn't give up. You know, he would never tell you what The Shining was about or what 2001 was about. You know, he was very um, secretive in that sense. You know, he <laughs> I think as a director, he clearly had a lot of and just probably as a person, he had a lot of trust issues. He trusted his audience to an extent and that he pushed them, but he also relied on them to well, maybe not relied on them, but he expected them to then make their own opinions as opposed to flock to him for answers. But the movie is such a fluid and complete journey that I was just blown away by it this time around. And um, I understand why people don't like it. Uh, the first half is incredibly off putting and so disturbing and so it, it's, it is a huge turnoff for certain people, and I totally understand that. But for me, it just really worked in watching all of the um, the choices that Kubrick makes and um, how he, you know, utilizes the camera movement to the um, to the music, I think is the real the real achievement um, to the story. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting double feature or triple feature in that sense, you know, um, but I'm very glad I rewatched it. So Clockwork Orange, I gave it four and a half stars, big old like button. Um, yeah. All right. Before I continue, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Let's be honest, folks. We've all turned to the fridge when we're in desperate need for home decor inspiration. How many households have you been in with a bowl of fruit painting on the wall? It's a worldwide phenomenon. And it's heartbreaking when you realize your favorite fungal ingredient just doesn't liven up your living room as you thought it would. But have no fear. Even though the mushrooms in your fridge don't have much personality, you can add some cheeky, curvaceous toadstools to your walls. Introducing Tushrooms. Former film guest Lexi Cutmore has put her artistry out into the world and let me just say, it's one of a kind. With the cap of a mushroom and body of a female figure, mushroom ladies come in a variety of customizable colors, shapes, and sizes. The drawings are a unique way to add some personalized color to your home. Plus, who isn't all about body positivity at this point? Get with the times, people. To order your tush rooms, visit Underground Art Project on Etsy.com. That's Underground Art Project on Etsy.com. That's U-N-D-G-N-D-A-R-T-P-R-O-J. Customize your fungus female today. And we're back. Two days later, on June 16th, the Brisson binge continued with, uh, and forgive me, I know I'm going to mispronounce this title because I do not speak French. Um, I believe it is pronounced Wazar Balthazar, which I, I believe translates to Random Balthazar. This is a movie about a donkey that is um, transferred from owner to owner throughout a couple different families in, um, in a small town in France. And you get to see their relationships with one another and how the horse is kind of the framing system, framing device of the actual narrative. It is on Criterion. This movie is remarkable. It is beautiful and incredibly upsetting, but it's so perfectly handled. I gave it four and a half stars. I gave it that big old like button. I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show before, but I'm not a fan of animal movies. You know, particularly I think that the... Um, the dog lover genre in particular was, you know, starting with the family friendly series of air bud and then moving into things like, um, Hotchkey. Is that what that movie's called? Or that one Richard Gere dog movie or the, 
a dog's purpose or a dog's journey or just all, all of that shit. I don't like it. Or eight below. I hate because they're so easy, manipulative, emotion tugging movies that I just, I can't get into. Um, but this is something different. Like the, the, the donkey itself is a clear like character and they do a good job of filming him and the relationship that he, that Balthazar, you know, is, has with every, but it's such a clearly built world and it is, again, I, I think I already said this, but it is devastating what happens in this movie. <laughs> and it, obviously it being a story about an animal, I think you can kind of tell what happens. But trust me, you don't. Because there's so many other stories that are intertwined around this horse that it's just fascinating. Um, and I think that this was the movie that really made me kind of key into Brisson's real creative power. Because A Man Escaped, you know, when that finishes and you just watch it, you're just like, fuck yes! It's like a feat, that movie. But this, like, you end it with such an amount of sadness. But it's not, it's not like Heineke, who we've talked about with Piano Teacher. Like, it's not so aggressively cynical and punishing to the audience. I said I would love. I love Heineke. He's, he's the man. Don't get me wrong. But Bersan is not telling you that the world is pointless. He's devastated with you. You know, he's not punishing the audience. He is right there with you and just being like, it's a damn shame. And it's so much, I think it's so much easier for an audience to look at Bersan's film, particularly this and the sister film, which I'll talk about um, in a second, called Machette, that... Um, you know, he, that, that that's all he is, that he's just like portraying a very dark, depressing, terrible world that's just going to eat you up and swallow you whole. But this movie, there's so much beauty in it. There's so much beauty in the imagery and the character moments and, and the beats that these, that there's like four different like character stories going on, but he paints such a beautiful canvas for you. And I, I think it's, I, I say this in my review, that it's it's a flower slowly wilting away rather than just being stepped on, you know? So I think that's the beauty of this movie. Um, and again, it is extremely depressing. It is devastating. But it's an incredible film. I, I love Wazar Balthazar. I still like A Man Escaped more, um, and another film of his that I'll talk about later. But this one is really special, and I'm, I'm excited to return to. All right, then on June 19th, it took a big switch from narrative films to um, to the documentary world, to a documentary that I have been kind of putting off for a while. Um, directed by Alex Gibney from 2005, I watched Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. I think this was on Hulu. Uh, this, this movie's great. It's really interesting. Um, I had first heard about Enron from The Simpsons, which is a clip that they reference in this documentary about... I think Skinner gets broken up with and they're at, um, I can't, I think if they're at Epcot or something, they're at some amusement park. Homer's like, Principal Skinner, do you want to go on a ride with us? And, and Skinner goes, I'd prefer the ride of broken dreams. And Homer goes, oh, you mean the Enron ride? Come on. And the ride is just a roller coaster that's the stock market crashing and then it goes up again and then it crashes and then you go into the poor house. Um, it's, a, it's a great visual gag. But that was my first time hearing about Enron, you know, that I didn't really have any real you know, connectedness to it when it was happening because I was so young. And I love Alex Gibney. He's one of my favorite documentary filmmakers. All of his movies are so entertaining um, and has such a a wide encompassing knowledge of the subject material, but he's also clearly trying to make his own point. So he does such a good job of setting up the actual situation or the topic. So in this being Enron, um, if you're unfamiliar, Enron was um, uh, an energy company that was big on Wall Street, and um, then it was revealed that there was so much corruption going on. I don't want to reveal too much about the story because it's fascinating how it un unravels. There was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of um, misconduct going on behind the scenes that eventually led to the downfall and complete bankruptcy of the company. I think it was it was I think it was just before the. Well, I guess it would be if this movie came out in two thousand five. It would it would obviously be before the housing crisis. Um, but you can see the connective tissue between things like this and Enron and stuff that is talked about and stuff like the big short that is the housing crisis. So you can see the pairing of those. Um, but the, the figures in this movie are so interesting. Um, you can see the emotion in it. I love documentaries from this era um, because I think that, you know, they didn't have to um, 
you know, work hard to get the emotion out of people. People were just so clearly like, we need to expose this. Um, and so clearly damaged by what was happening. Yeah, it's a, it is a fascinating um, movie. And again, a very, very entertaining. And so I'm glad I finally crossed it off my list. I'm a big fan of documentaries. Even though I don't watch them as much, I can always watch more. I know that Alex Gibney is going to um, you know, put together a good one. I need to watch his movie. Um, the one that I haven't watched of his that I really need to is um, Taxi to the Dark Side, which I believe he won the Academy Award for in 2007. Um, so I need to watch that. Uh, but yeah, Enron, the smartest guys in the room. Give it four stars. I really enjoyed it. The next day, June 20th, I watched Independence Day. Independence Day, I have a very interesting relationship to because I first saw it or knew about it from this, the, the scene of the White House blowing up. I think I saw it on TV, and then I also saw it parodied in um, in Austin Powers. And so I constantly was tracking it down, trying to find it. And, and then finally, I think I got it at the video store because I, whenever I wanted to rent it from the video store, it was like out or something like that. And finally, I rented it. I watched it. And it didn't really stay with me all that much. But I remember enjoying it. Like, I remember a feeling of fun. But I don't remember, like, going... I never went back to it. Um, and something I've been doing recently when I, I do indulge in uh, in getting high, I like to watch something that I'm at least somewhat familiar with, like a rewatch of some sort that I haven't seen in a while because I'll at least kind of know what to expect on a surface level. But then the unfolding of the story is like, oh yeah, this happens. Oh, this happens. It's kind of fun that way. Um, this movie's bonkers. <laughs> it's so clearly made in 1996. Um, but it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I gave it three and a half stars. Roland Eimrich, he's an interesting filmmaker. I don't really have any huge opinions on him. I mean, this movie is big and dumb and stupid, but it's such a good time. I do think it's probably Emmerich's best of the ones that I've seen. I think this is definitely better than 2012, which is awful. This is definitely better than The Patriot, which I... The Patriot has its moments, but I, I, I'm not a fan. I'm not a big fan of The Patriot. I think this is much more his his suit. Um, I think there's too many characters in this movie. I think so much happens. It's very long. The violence is pretty visceral. Like, it's like, holy shit, they just blew up New York. You know, it's it's insane. And then, you know, Bill Pullman as the president giving the speech at the end is so um, is so great. It's, it's just fantastic. So, yeah, Independence Day. The next day, June 21st, it was actually my birthday. It was my 24th birthday that day, and uh, I did not have to work, and I decided to treat myself by going to the movies, because that's what I do. You guys know this. What show are you listening to? Obviously, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and this was a weird time for movies, because Elvis and the Black Phone were coming out the next weekend, and this past weekend, what just came out was... Um, Jurassic World Dominion or Lightyear, two movies that I was not excited to see really at all. I decided to see Jurassic World because it was longer and I wanted to stay at the movies longer, you know, just to take up more of the day, I guess. I don't know. This movie is terrible. This movie is so bad. And I was not. Look, the first Jurassic World is fine. It is like total. It's like two and a half, maybe three stars at best. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is atrocious. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom gets worse the more you think about think about it, and I, I hate that movie. And I was at least expecting this one to be a little bit better than that. You know, like, Colin Trevorrow's back, okay. You know, they learn from their mistakes, but I don't know. But this was so bad. It's two different movies happening at the same time. All the old stuff doesn't work. They turn Sam Neill into a bumbling idiot grampy, essentially. And it's like disappointing because he's great in the original. You know, Jeff Goldblum, you know, doesn't really do anything. Laura Dern, I love her, but I don't know what she's doing in this movie. Her hair looks really, really strange. I, and I'm only saying this because it stood out to me throughout the entire movie. I don't know why they gave her these really weird bangs. Like, I don't know. As much as I would like to say I'm, I enjoy to see the old cast together, the fact that, again, that that is its own story and it's happening side by side, the current Owen, Bryce Dallas Howard, blue storyline that I also don't give a shit about. Honestly, if anyone can tell me what happens in this movie, hats off to you, because I have no idea what the story is in this movie. There's locusts. They're still confined to a facility. Like, wasn't the whole point of the last one to bring Jurassic, like, to bring dinosaurs to the mainland and, you know, show that? 
that's not what happens in this movie, really. They don't go, like, they're in um, Malta at one point, I think, and there's a chase scene with dinosaurs, but, like, it still feels like there's no actual consequences to the actual world, and then there's, they're battling locusts at one point, like, that's, like, the main, like, I have no idea what happens in this movie. It's so, so bad. But look, any time to go to the movies is a good time in my book. And because it was my birthday, I got a free large popcorn and a free large soda. So um, I will not complain about that. Um, but yeah, Jurassic World Dominion, terrible. Next up, the next day, June 22nd, I watched the sister film that I, to uh, Wazar Balthazar that I already mentioned. It's called Machette. It's from 1967, also directed by Robert Bosson. Um, this movie's great. And uh, I understand why it's a sister film to Wazar Balthazar because um, a lot of similar themes of, um, you know, watching someone struggle through life and and it is very crushing. Um, I think it makes sense to watch this one after Wazar Balthazar because that one has a lot more beauty to it. And as I said, it's kind of the decay of beauty and hope. Um, and this world is without either of those. Like there's really no beauty or hope in this movie at all. I guess they're all kind of contained within this lead character of Machette, who's a who's a little girl. And then everything else that happens around her is just, like, incredibly crushing. Um, so uh, I think that it makes sense to watch this movie after that film, because it does kind of feel like a, it does feel like a continuation of the same world in a way, like, as a, as a result of what happens in Wazar Balthazar. But yeah, I really, I really enjoy this movie. It's, uh, it's a four-star film. I don't know if I'll be returning to it anytime soon. Maybe it'll be one of those cases, like, I would definitely return to Wazar Balthazar, and maybe it'll be one of those things where if I watch one, I want to watch the other. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but yeah, I'd say uh, it is a crushing movie, which is why I didn't give it the like, because um, I mean, I obviously I liked it, but like it wasn't one that I was like, yes, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, Machette, great movie. Next up, I took a, took a four day break. Wow, that was a long time for me, I guess. Um, on June 26th, I watched David Lynch's Lost Highway from 1997. I had thought I had seen this movie I had seen the ending. I had known. I knew how it ends, and I remember Robert Blake. I remember Robert Loggia, his like explosion on the side of the highway. So I had thought I had seen it, but it turns out I hadn't. Um, so this was like my first watch, and I will say, I didn't get to watch this on like an actual clear, well, like good copy of it. I get. I just haven't ordered the Blu-ray yet, but I found it on YouTube in full with, I believe, Hungarian subtitles, I think. I don't know. So that was a little distracting. I wish the quality was a little bit better, but I could still see what was happening and understand what was going on. So I won't, you know, it was kind of like if I was watching it on like an old TV, essentially, on VHS, which which in a way, I guess, kind of is fitting because, you know, the, the movie contains like a, you know, videotape situation. Um, But this movie's great. I, I really enjoyed it. David Lynch has kind of become a... Uh, comfort director in me mainly because i um i really appreciate his films and uh what he does i always think it's going to be an interesting experience i say this only having seen half of his movies we haven't had the chance to talk about him on the show um we will soon though i promise but this movie is a true nightmare the way it like portrays certain imagery and characters are um you know how they fill the frame is very lynchian but it's also one of his more slower paced films like Blue Velvet, I think moves really well, you know, and even like Mulholland Drive, they all move pretty well, you know, despite the fact that they're all, I think, over two hours. I'm definitely I'm very intrigued by this movie. This is another one where I'm not really sure what it's about. And I think, you know, a lot of people try and get to the bottom of what, you know, Mulholland Drive is about or I think Blue Velvet is a little bit more straightforward, but it's still, you know, it's still it's Blue Velvet. But again, you know, I don't think Lynch's movies are meant to be tried to get to a concrete bottom. I think it's just something that is, it's kind of like the Mary Poppins bag where it's just like constantly like never ending. But I was very intrigued by this film. I would definitely like to rewatch it in better quality. I know they just remastered it in 4K to put it back into theaters as they did with Inland Empire, which I have not seen and I've been wanting to see for a long time. But I do not live in New York City, so I, uh, I was not able to attend a screening of that. Nevertheless, um, I still very much enjoyed this movie and my viewing of it, so I gave it four stars, gave it a like, and uh, yeah, David Lynch is amazing. All right, we're nearing the end here. we got three more films to talk about. June 29th, I watched 
L'Argent, which is uh, Robert Bresson's last film from 1983. And uh, I figured this was a good way to end the binge of Bresson to end um, where everyone kind of ended with him. Um, you know, his, his very last film, the only film that he made in the 80s, all about um, the passing of a forged $500 note, um, but how it travels from, you know, the person who initially gets it and then how it is um, passed on from person to person and the story surrounding it. This movie is incredible. This movie is so good. Um, I gave it five stars. I gave it a like. It's my second favorite of the Bursan movies. Um, I still like A Man Escaped More, but this movie is, the way that it's paced is so fascinating. You know, I think every single scene is paced like the exact same, which gives the emotion a real resonant quality to it. And it was just so interesting in the way that it ends. It is a, uh, it's a, it's a very chaotic movie despite the fact that I said, you know, it is very paced. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it, it's not tension-filled like A Man Escape is, um, but it is very destructive, uh, especially in the final act where you're just like, God damn it. This is also the only film of his that I've seen uh, of the ones that I mentioned that is um, in color. A lot of his movies um, in between Muchette and Largent that um, that I have not seen, like The Devil probably and Lancelot de Locke, Four Nights a Dreamer. Like I haven't seen those movies, and I, b- I believe all of those are in color. Um, but the all the other ones, The Escape, Pickpocket, Trial of Joan of Arc, Balthazar, Muchette, they're all black and white. Um, oh, I guess Balthazar, Balthazar is uh, translates to Balthazar at random, as opposed to just random Balthazar. Interesting. Again, I don't speak French. Anyway, yeah, Larjan is a great movie. I the the thing that I really loved about it other than just seeing how the situation escalates and is the way that it looks because it was in color. It was kind of a clearly different, you know, a, a, a divergence from Bersan, at least that I had seen up until that point, but still encapsulating all of the um, themes that he's known for. You know, money is a, is a common theme, uh, thievery, trickery, persecution. He has all of those themes in there. But the way this movie's colored, it looks like money. Like, it's obviously made on film, but the colors are so, um, there's a lot, like, it's so blue. There's a lot of, like, bluish-green tints to the scenery, making it feel like an actual, like, if you see the notes in the film, you know, a lot of those colors are represented throughout the, the rest of the movie. And it makes it so visually, like, it pops. It's a clear, it's not just color, you know, it is a very deliberate choice to make everything look like it has more worth to it. And I think that's kind of a bigger meaning of the movie where we're putting value and worth into things that don't really have anything else behind them and what we actually value and what we um, see as um, important. I would love to do an episode of Lerjean at some point. I remember, so I, I mentioned that they uh, talked about this on the Safdie's Criterion Closet picks and Benny, I think, said that he thought this movie was like a dark comedy because it's like a, a practical joke on horribly wrong. And I, I guess I can see where he's coming from with that, but the, the way that the the story plays out is so much more punishing. I mean, obviously, like, Persong can be funny in his own right. Like, I think of all the movies, of all the movies that I've seen of his that could be funny, I think Pickpocket has the most kind of, like, it's a living kind of, like, vibe to it. Lerjean is dark, though. It is very, very disturbing. Um, like, it doesn't feel like a last film. Uh, you know, he lived another... Yeah, he lived till 99, so he lived another 16 years without making a movie. So it's a weird movie to end on, but I think that last movies are fascinating. You know, I don't know if there's a lot of self-awareness to think that this is his last movie or, like, that he knew that he wasn't going to make anything else after this, but I'm very glad I ended my binge with this movie because um, I think I started with the best, started and ended with two of his best Um I also kind of like took away from this that I don't really consider Bresson one of my like real favorite directors. Um, I don't really consider him like a guy for me that I consider like Lynch or um, De Palma, you know, after binging their works. But I'm really glad that I went through this. I, I Like I said, I watched six of his movies. I'm really glad I went through this journey of, you know, kind of learning more about him and what he's interested in and why people love him. I understand why he's so highly regarded. And I guess like I really loved, you know, four of the six movies I watched. But I, I, I guess I'm not really going into the movies like having so much personal influence or thinking he's one of my favorites. But um, like I'm not really obsessed with him as an artist. More I am as I just enjoy you know, his output. 
I don't know. It's hard to explain. Um, I'm not trying to bash him or, you know, say that, you know, his artistry wasn't valid or anything like that. It's just, just, just interesting. That's all. I'm just kind of rambling at this point. So anyway, uh, Versailles binges over Larjean, 1983. I gave it five stars. I gave it the like button. All right. Two more films <laughs> on that same day. Another double feature. I watched Larjean during the day and I watched, um, this next film at, at night. Uh, um, another example of watching a movie under the influence, um, as a rewatch, this is a movie that's really important to my childhood um, that I hadn't that I have not seen in maybe like 10 years or maybe more. I don't know. Um, it's iRobot. <laughs> I know I said that uh, Will Smith didn't do anything for me. This movie, I guess, is kind of the obsession, uh, the uh, exception to that. Um, so I guess Men in Black and, and this I love Men in Black. Uh, that first one is so good. iRobot, though, is interesting. I saw this movie when I was five, I think, or say I had to be at least six because it came out in 2004. I remember one time my dad came up to visit us and my brother and I went to see him. We went to Niagara Falls. We were going to rent a movie in the hotel room and we were going to watch. I wanted to watch Shark Tale, <laughs> but um, my dad and brother wanted to watch Dodgeball. And so they were like, OK, if you watch Dodgeball, and you don't laugh once, then we'll watch Shark Tale next, which I learned was just ended up being bullshit, not because I think Dodgeball is funny. I mean, I do. I love Dodgeball, but it was because we ended up watching that movie later at night, so I was going to go to bed anyway. So we watched Dodgeball. I obviously thought it was funny. Dodgeball's fucking great. I love Dodgeball. Um, then I had to go to bed, uh, but they ended up watching iRobot, staying up later. And I watched half of iRobot with like my one eye open, you know, trying to pretend that I'm asleep, you know, this movie is essentially just bad minority report, you know, like it's, and I think that's probably why I liked it so much, you know, like I really liked it as a kid. I gave it two and a half stars this rewatch because I don't really think it's a good movie. I wouldn't call it like an entirely bad movie. There's just things about it that don't work, but I gave it a like because again, I watched it under the influence and that was definitely a fun time. And there's some nostalgia attributed to it. It's like, I, I cannot deny that. Um, you know, it, it was a good change of pace after Versailles binge, you know, cause it, it's very straightforward. Anything you need to know story-wise about this movie, the movie's going to tell you like the movie will just flat out. Like a character will just be like, you know, Will Smith, you don't like robots or this is my character or I do this and this person does that. Like, it's so straightforward. I will have to give this movie credit for introducing me to the song Superstition by Stevie Wonder, which is, you know, one of the greatest songs of all time. It has some horrendous Converse product placement in it that is just like so in your face and so 2004. There's also some really bad CGI, especially the fact that this movie hinges on its CGI because there's robots and shit in it. And it's in the I think it's in like 2035 or something. Like, I can't remember. It's honestly it might be the same time as Minority Report. Like it's the same. And Minority Report came out two years before this. So this movie is incredibly influenced by Minority Report, obviously, which is why it exists in the first place. So, yeah, so I had fun rewatching this. There's things about the story that I had completely forgotten about and um, that I was kind of like, oh, this is what this movie is. OK, um, so it's fine. Like, it's kind of a whatever movie, but it has some nostalgia for me. So I'm, I am glad that I rewatched it. And finally, we've reached the end of the uh, June section of this diary entry. <laughs> Finishing it off with a new movie uh, that I had been uh, wanting to watch for a while. Uh, I watched on the last day of the month, June 30th, um, and that is Cha-Cha Real Smooth. This is Cooper Rife's second film after shithouse this movie won the audience award at sundance and was acquired by apple tv for i think the biggest distribution deal that sundance i don't know if it's ever had but had this year you know it was the big one and it's the same thing that apple did with coda the previous year <laughs> cha cha real smooth is essentially about um this college graduate named Andrew played by Rife who meets uh, Dakota Johnson and her daughter played by Vanessa Burghard who is um, autistic and they develop a relationship like a, a platonic relationship it's um I was excited for this movie because I really loved Rife's first film Shithouse I think it has all the hallmarks of a, a really great first feature film it has a lot of heart it's really simple it's really messy um 
but in all like the best ways. Like it's a really special movie. If you haven't seen it, I do highly recommend checking it out. I think it's on Showtime if you have it. And you know, I was excited that he was getting you know some more acolytes for his new film, and you know that he was you know, kind of coming more into the mainstream as a director. And I was like, okay, this is great. You know, this is inspiring. You know, he's in his young 20s. He's already made two films and, you know, has success with people like like Dakota Johnson's in this movie, as I said, um, Leslie Mann, Brad Garrett. And so I was, I was excited and I was really disappointed by this movie, unfortunately. Like, I think I gave it two and a half stars. I did not give it the like. Like, I think it's fine. Like, I think it has a good sentiment. It's obviously made from a positive viewpoint. It's very crowd-pleasing. I understand why a lot of people do like this movie, because it's very sweet. I didn't really find the story all that interesting. Like, I think the story is wears out after a while. Like, air starts to go out of it. Like, it doesn't hold your attention all that much, I feel. And I think, honestly, Cooper Rife is the downfall of the movie for me. I did not like his character at all. I did not think that he fit the role. I think I understand why he cast himself in the lead role and, you know, he did it in Shithouse and he's really good in Shithouse. Like he acts really well and the character makes sense for what he's trying to do. But this is, and I'll at least give him credit that this is a different character. This is not the same character as that. But I found him incredibly unlikable. I found him very annoying and not interesting at all. Um, But also he makes some very interesting choices as a director that really plagued the movie. Um, you know, I understand that this is a bit of more of a low budget, you know, independent movie. So there's a lot of handheld camera, you know, and I, I used to praise handheld camera a lot more than I do now. And I mean, like people like Darren Aronofsky have had great success with it and used it, you know, greatly to the effect of, of the film, like the wrestler black Swan. But this kind of felt lazy to me. Like, I feel like there could have been more ways to do a low budget movie that still looked good. Like, I don't know, like, it just, I don't know, it, it didn't, it didn't really look good, and the editing is atrocious, like, scenes just don't finish, there are full scenes that just don't resolve at all, and they just cut to the next scene, scenes, I think, in terms of this story, you know, they needed to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a conclusion to move on to the next thing, and if they did that, I probably would have enjoyed this a lot more, because there are ideas that are not fully formed because scenes don't actually end and that doesn't mean they go on forever it just means they're cut off they're just nipped in the bud before they can make any actual statement or connection to the rest of the story and bring new ideas or connect other ideas to the actual narrative and it's frustrating like there's a scene where like a fight breaks out at a dance and it just ends And it's between important characters that could like affect the relationship and like actually have ramifications for the rest of the story. And they just don't show that. And it happens so many times throughout the movie. It was it's so frustrating. Like it was so like I was like screaming at my TV like you like it just needed to like I think the movie's like an hour and 40 some minutes or something like that. Like it doesn't need I, I wish it was a little bit longer it could have benefited from being a little bit longer because scenes need to resolve, at least in terms of this story. I understand there are movies that do this also to great effect. I'm not trying to make a sweeping statement about all filmmaking. I'm saying for this particular movie, if scenes had actually concluded like a scene normally does, I think they could have really brought the idea home. But this ended up just kind of being like an actual sophomore slump for me. Uh, And it's really unfortunate because like I said, I was very excited about it and I wanted to like it. I wanted, I wanted to kind of more sing the praises of Rife more, just be like, yes, come on. I was really pulling for this guy, you know? And unfortunately it just didn't work out that way. And if you're enjoying this movie, that's fine. And I understand it, but you know, this just did not work for me. Um, So I ended up giving it two and a half stars And that is how I concluded my watch list for June. We did it. That is the end of this diary entry uh, for uh, June 2022 of what I watched. I want to thank you guys for uh, listening to the show and just for, you know, being a fan and uh, being patient with me during the hiatus and uh, going with me to try this this new piece of content. I'm honestly very excited about this to get this out to you guys, and I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like more Frankly I Love Movies content, 
please be sure to go uh, check us out on social media. We are on uh, Facebook and Instagram, Frankly I Love Movies, and we are at Frankly underscore podcast on Twitter. And obviously, if you'd like to follow me on Letterboxd, you can check me out at BigWalls21. That's B-I-G-W-A-H-L-S 21. I'm going to have another diary entry um, for the first half of July, I think from like July 1st to like July um, 16th, I think. And then I'll do another one for the second half. But I should have that one out in the next uh, couple weeks or so. And uh, I'm really excited for um, what is to come. And it's just nice to be creating content again. Thank you guys so much again. I'm Josh Wall. And frankly, I love movies. Movies.